Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today on Truth and Movies, it's the Clash of the Titans in the Kaiju Royal Rumble sequel, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Consider us very intimidated. And Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver have one wild night in one wild debut, Booksmart. We only have one night left to have studied and partied in high school. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello folks, it's Michael Leader here. We're back from Cannes. No bells ringing in the background, no gelato off mic. Sitting across from Adam Woodward and Hannah Woodhead, also back from Cannes. Woo! Woo-woo. How are we doing? Have we adjusted to the warmer weather here in the UK? Yes, it is slightly more temperate here, mm. isn't it? My seventh Cannes, probably ah. the worst weather, but probably the best film, so oh, there wow. was something to brighten up. Lots the... of superlatives in many directions there. <laughs> yes. Hannah, and it was your first Cannes. It was. How did it go? Uh, great. Um, I had no sort of benchmark for this, I guess, because I've done other festivals. I did Toronto and Sundance most recently. And, you know, you kind of like, there's such a different vibe at European festivals from mm. North American festivals. And Cannes always the one, I think, as a critic, you're like, oh, yeah, that's the big one. You've got to go at least once. But no, I had a great time. I was surprised at how nice all the French people were after hearing horror stories about the security guards being less than helpful Mm -hmm. and I think in terms of films I couldn't have really uh, chosen a better year to make my my can debut it really was like out of I think the 30 films I saw I would only say two or three were like genuinely not good films Uh the rest were either sort of good or like very very good I'd agree I think I only saw maybe one outright bad film but everything there's a lot of pretty good to great films and then a few real mm. standouts yeah. in there. Even looking back at films that earlier on in those dispatches, films like Baccarat that maybe I seemed a little dim on, you look great in, in retrospect now, maybe compared to some films we've seen this week. <laughs> yeah, it's a real. Uh, it's been a real eye-opener coming back to London and going straight into Godzilla, King of Monsters. It's yeah. like, oh, we are not on uh, the corset anymore. <laughs> we are back to soulless blockbuster fare, but... Because Cannes is one of those very exclusive, like everyone there works in the film industry in some capacity because it's not open to the public. You are just kind of surrounded by people for a solid two weeks who just really love film and want to, mm-hmm. all they want to do is talk about film and how much they love film. And it's, you know, it is 
one of the great sort of privileges of our job that we get to go and just hang out with each other and watch like four good movies a day. I think that's, you know. Four good movies a day, one good pizza a day, three great gelatos a day. <laughs> and uh, being 10 minutes from everything is so, like, last night it took me an hour to get home from Godzilla and I was like, oh, I really miss just being a 10 minute stroll from the cinema at all times. Adam, your seventh can. You're not jaded or cynical on this one. You said this was a good one. No, I think I did sort of five in a row and then took a couple of years off just for my own sanity. <laughs> but the last two years have been really good. They keep changing up the press schedule and the, and the, the screening guide. Seems to work actually better, I think. It used to be that you'd get up for the competition film at 8.30 in the morning and then there'd be another one at about 7 o'clock in the evening. And now it's a bit more spread out, a mm-hmm. bit more time to actually write and process your thoughts, which is always nice. And people are seemingly seeing things at different times, so it's not such a scrum to get in. Although the, the Tarantino uh, mm. experience of queuing a couple of hours or, or so beforehand and, uh, and all being squeezed into that. Uh, I mean, it's a very large auditorium, but when you've got thousands of press all trying to get in, it soon becomes quite a kind of claustrophobic thing. But that was one of those you know, remember where you were kind of screening <laughs> when you saw that for the first time. It was the hot ticket, but I think the hotter ticket for the festival was The Lighthouse, the Robert Eggers movie, wasn't it? I mm. think even the later screenings, the repeat screenings towards the back end of the second week, people, people were still yeah. queuing and people we know were, were shut out. Two and a half hour queues. And I like to think that we were the first wave of that, like, rampant sort of... Uh, well, we were there at six in the morning. We were there at six in the morning. <laughs> we were second in line. And when the movie finished, we were all like, yeah, really great. And then, you know, by the evening screening, people were queuing for two and a half hours. Yeah. I think we timed that very well. <laughs> and quite unique this year, the awards given out at the uh, last weekend sort of actually chimed with the critical reception. The, the good films seem to be rewarded. <laughs> yeah, there's always a few. They always like to throw in a few surprises. And mm-hmm. it's often hard to second guess the, the jury, which this year was led by Gonzalez Inaruto. I would have guessed he would have gone for something like Pain and Glory. Mm-hmm. Pedro Almodovar's film and I think actually they went with a kind of filmmaker's film mm-hmm. in Bong Joon-ho's Parasite the surprising awards I guess were, were things like the Dardenne Brothers winning for director which mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think they are they're such kind of revered veteran auteurs that you know them having a film in competition and you not giving them an award would almost be like sacrilege <laughs> same with like Terence Malick and Tarantino and all these guys you know there was always a chance that they were going to get awards but actually Impressively, you had people like Celine Sciamma coming through, mm-hmm. really making an impression on, on certainly on, on the critics there, with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Mm-hmm. Antonio Banderas winning Best Actor. Finally getting mm-hmm. some recognition. Yeah, and uh, how wonderful seeing him in, in such a kind of relaxed m- mode of, of acting where he's he looks a little bit older and a little bit wiser. He seems to have not got any of this baggage from being a, a sort of slightly jaded Hollywood star now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And obviously working with Al Modivar again, who he's, who he's worked with many times before. But that was a real thrill seeing him collect that award. He I, seemed genuinely... I mean, he, that guy has, has won a lot and, and been there and done it all now, but he, he seemed genuinely elated. I, I read a quote from him. I don't know if it was accurate or not, if it was in an interview where somebody asked him... Because these awards happen sometimes a whole week and a half after a film's premiered, so sometimes the stars have already gone back home. So someone asked him, how long did it take you to get back here for the ceremony? And he said, oh, it's taken me 40 years to get here. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> and it's oh, he's he's also fantastic in Pain and Glory. It's a sort of career peak performance, isn't it? But I'm sure we'll discuss that when that film comes out. Yeah. Anyway, one final recommendation maybe from each of us from Cannes. Maybe one that's not. Oh God. Not one of the, one of the big films. I know we covered a lot. There's a whole thread on Twitter, isn't there, of the dozens and dozens of reviews that we penned out there. 
maybe something slightly off the radar? Um, I very much like this film called And Then We Danced, mm-hmm. which is, oh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, Levin Akin, I think, mm-hmm. um, who is a Georgian-Swedish filmmaker. It's just a very sweet film about two Georgian dancers <laughs> who um, meet in a class and kind of have a rivalry that turns into a romance. It's just a very sweet slight film mm. and it has a really good needle drop by Robin and some good ABBA usage yeah. and some good uh, it has some good Studio Ghibli content in it as it's well surprisingly so yeah, yeah. Spirited Away poster on the wall yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's you know it's just one of those little gems that was in Director's Fortnight and I don't I hope it gets a bigger release but um, watching it was very much like oh this is just really sweet and lovely and mm-hmm. it felt very like this is kind of why you come to Cannes to yeah. watch these kind of little movies that um, you end up really loving. And same, uh, one of the films that I pointed out before we went that uh, jumped out of the programme for me was a, an animated film called I Lost My Body. And it delivered. It was fantastic. Mm. It, and it, now it, Netflix have and got Netflix it. Netflix have bought it. So <laughs> the world will see this film, maybe not in cinemas, but at least that guarantees worldwide distribution. It also picked up the, the Grand Prix of Critics Week. Yeah. Uh, so one worth looking out for. We, we haven't even mentioned that actually in terms of the awards, it was kind of a historic year. We had the first black female female filmmaker who uh, Matty Diop won the Grand Jury Prize for Atlantic mm. and Bong Joon-ho is obviously the first Korean filmmaker to win a to win, win the, the Palm, palm yeah. which is crazy thinking about how many amazing <laughs> Korea, Korean filmmakers have been can. But anyway, sorry, Adam. Adam, do you have one <laughs> final recommendation before we leave Cannes behind us for one year? There's a film in the director's fortnight, I think, called Song Without a Name. Mm. Again, first time female filmmaker, very similar vibe to kind of Roma, shot in black and white quite stark quite bleak film but just yeah as a debut feature very very impressive and I think that is getting a release over here later in this year Mm -hmm. hopefully so yeah song without a name one to look out for terrific well that's Cannes done for one year we're back to the mainstream releases and we're straight into the summer blockbuster season leading the charge this week is Godzilla King of the Monsters Godzilla's back and this time, he's not alone. This sequel to Gareth Edwards' 2014 epic bulks out the roster of earth-shaking titans, introducing the likes of Mothra, Rodan, and Godzilla's arch-rival Ghidorah. Meanwhile, the human race faces extinction as these gigantic prehistoric creatures rough each other up in heavily populated areas. But is Godzilla foe or friend? Hold your fire. We don't know if he'll attack. Well, he will if you keep those guns on <laughs> The light show. It's an intimidation display. Consider us very intimidated. A clip from Godzilla King of the Monsters there. Adam, were we excited for this one? So this is in part of this major franchise now. We had Godzilla a few years ago, Skull Island two years ago, and now this one, which is sort of bringing the two together for a future face-off down the line. Are we on board? Yeah, to be honest, I, I'd kind of forgotten that this was a franchise in, right. in, in the making. Gareth Edwards 
Godzilla from 2014, I think, is one of the the great modern blockbusters right. um, in its restraint in terms of not showing us the monster straight away. Godzilla is this really ominous presence in the film, almost this kind of spectre, but he keeps the action at ground level. It's more of a kind of human, character-driven drama. When the action does kick in at the end, I mean, the, the kind of big city destroying, I think it's San Francisco mm. is the city that gets levelled at the end, and it really is all the more impressive and impactful for the, the, the kind of slow burn build up that he generates throughout. And and this, it's almost like, I think although a lot of critics were quite warm on uh, Edward's film, the general kind of fan base were a little bit more lukewarm on it. And I think the studio have clearly listened to that and gone, right, we're going to throw in as much mm-hmm. Godzilla and as much monster as we can. After sort of two weeks of being indulged with God-level cinema at Cannes, this was like a serious <laughs> crashing down to earth. It is just a completely, I think Hannah said soulless earlier mm. on, it is, it is a completely soulless, quite joyless uh, and quite grim film as well. It really is, isn't it? And, th- and that is almost from the off. It's the characters we come to, the human-level characters are marked with trauma from the San Francisco um, events of, of 2014, but also the look of the film, the oh. feel of the film. It's so leaden and serious. It's one of these films that takes place in various locations. I mean, initially you, you get a glimpse of San Francisco as it's kind of being slowly regenerated and, and reclaimed by nature as well, interestingly. And there's this theme running throughout of of man's kind of impact or humankind's impact on the natural world mm. and the whole thing is this very clumsy metaphor for for us trying to save the world I actually think it's, it's weirdly it has this undercurrent of like pro-nuclear yeah. uh, <laughs> military action uh, it, it feels like a kind of brazen anti kind of CND propaganda movie mm-hmm. um, it, this idea that we can only save the natural world through kind of nuclear capability somehow. And, and there's, I mean, there's literally a scene where they release a, a nuclear warhead, which Godzilla somehow can sort of uh, sponge up all, all the nuclear energy that's been spilled out. And then he transforms almost into this like mega radiation beast and, and just goes stomping around and, and yeah it's, it's it's a very strange the politics of this film are sort of all over the place it feels like a misreading of you know the Japanese original which is from nuclear paranoia or the the wounds that linger from Hiroshima mm. and Nagasaki yeah so uh, Hannah what did you make of this film you saw this oh, different screening to us yesterday evening yeah and I was already on the back foot because it started half an hour late and the last thing I want to be doing at 10 o'clock at night is watching a Godzilla movie but I was kind of like when the first trailer came out where they had Claire de Lune and these kind of like very dreamy shots of Mothra and I was quite I, I love Mothra I was up mm-hmm. for it but yeah god this is just such a slog in like every sense of the word I was actively sort of about maybe half an hour in I was willing every single character apart from Ken uh, Wanatambi to die I was just like you were all so awful as human beings like Mm -hmm. the whole thing kind of hinges on this very very strange choice that um one of the characters makes and it's such a kind of ridiculous bad faith decision i was just like no no none of this makes any sense none of this is backed up by science or reason and you know i can suspend my disbelief for a godzilla movie but i can only do it for so long and Mm -hmm. it just became this sort of like what stupid thing is going to happen next in this movie? What what poor decision are they going to make? And nobody looked like they wanted to be there. Like Charles Dance and Sally Hawkins were clearly just like, yeah, let's just get a paycheck and leave. And even Kyle Chandler, who I think is very charming, and I really like him and pretty much everything he does, 
did not look like a man who wanted to be anywhere near Godzilla. It was a bizarre use of Carl Chandler, and it gets to the heart of this strange mixed tone of the film where... It wants to be a Spielberg movie in many ways. And Carl Chandler literally just barrels in. He's divorced. His daughter's lost. He's like, damn it, I've got an ex-wife and a daughter out there. I've got to go and face up to Godzilla, you maniacs. And it's very War of the Worlds. Tom Cruise, the deadbeat dad who needs to come through and make good with his family. But also, I'm far from uh, a fan or an expert when it comes to these kaiju movies. But I, I get the sense that the application of the human level versus the, the kaiju level narratives seems to be one thing that changes between from film to film. Whether the humans are just wallpaper or exposition machines so we can get to another big scrap, or whether mm. there is actual human drama. And this film neither delivered on, on, on either. There's a long stretch of the movie where humans would just pop up and go, <laughs> wow, or pop up and <laughs> describe what's happening to Godzilla in, the, in that scene, where really... One thing that I do like about this film is that one thing they took from Skull Island was almost harking back to these physical fight scenes between monsters where you can tell it's motion-captured performances, which on a choreography level look better here, but were still shot in dim, grim, thunderstorm well, darkness. This is the thing I was going to say, Michael, I wouldn't know if they look better because I could not see a thing. Yeah. They had a real problem with lighting anything in this movie. There's literally a scene early on which is a blizzard in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, they seem to have gone out of their way to make this the ugliest film possible and if the scenes aren't like shot in the dark where I can't see anything, they're shot in kind of like blinding light. So mm-hmm. again, you cannot see what is going on and it's just, you know... I get it, they're trying to be like atmospheric and moody, but I just, on a very basic level, I could not see anything, and mm-hmm. that was frustrating for me. And, and say, take a film like Pacific Rim, which is far from a perfect movie, but that Ooh. at least had colour and design yeah, and, and joy like, in the design yeah. of the monsters. Or, and yeah. joy in the script as yeah. well. I think the major problem with this film is a sense of place, because most of the film unfolds basically on a kind of huge flight tracker simulation thing where you're sort of like following these different uh, monsters and they've basically got them all tracked using this kind of echolocation Mm -hmm. device yeah the science behind that is a little bit shaky I think but (laughs) so you're kind of watching all the humans dither around and they're all sort of gawping at this big monitor with this big screen that's that's kind of got all these like titans as Mm -hmm. they call them have been housed up in these like secret locations in exotic climes around the world but there's no sense of that of that kind of connecting and you kind of race between one and the next but they're all these very dark as you say very dingy scenes and and the set pieces that unfold there i mean it it could be anywhere basically Mm -hmm. there's no sense of place or geography and um I i think of like recent blockbusters that have done that really well something like tomb raider which i know a lot of people mm. didn't really love but that film has got very distinct like a sense of place and location mm. and the different you know whether it's like east london she's going around on a fixie bike or a kind of temple in cambodia or wherever she you know even though it's mostly shot i'm assuming on uh, on like sound stages in the old days obviously we're using kind of like map backgrounds and now it's all kind of green screen and cgi but you can still do that and retain a sense of like grounded place and geography within within the, mm-hmm. the world of the film and this just completely loses that i think and there's a weird they introduce this idea that the earth is maybe hollow and that, <laughs> oh yeah and that the monsters want one reason they can't really track them or I think it's just basically a way for them to speed up the plot a bit because suddenly <laughs> Godzilla has gone from like Venezuela to like Antarctica and so back again, good. and it's so and someone stupid. just kind of throws in this idea of like, oh yeah, maybe the the Earth is hollow and he's kind of found these loopholes and he's just diving through, which is <laughs> not really Bradley explored. Whitford's hollow Earther. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like I told you, I told you the Earth was hollow, and 
no sort of feeling for the implications of this at all. But that, that's one of the aspects of the film which come across as strange narrative shortcuts because it's delivered so seriously. But mm. if viewed through a 50s B-movie sci-fi lens, could be so camp mm. and silly. But that's if what, it I, that's what I mean. They, they, they introduce these ideas, but they don't do anything with them. Mm. It's just a kind of cheap narrative shortcut. Mm-hmm. And I think the dialogue especially, it doesn't lean hard enough into that kind of camp B-movie aesthetic. Or even something like the, the 98 Maroon Emmerich Godzilla, which <laughs> for all its flaws is, is a sort of big action spectacle, pretty much based all in New York, I think. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you get a little bit of the kind of human drama, the human narrative. And a lot of people, I think, complained about the scale and the design of Godzilla was like one of the, the major things. But if you revisit that movie now, there's a lot about it, which is fine. It, it kind of just about holds up in terms of the effects. And this one is just so overladen with really poor design and CGI. Oh dear. <laughs> Let's put some scores on this. So in, in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. I'll come to you first, Adam. Anticipation, well, I was not a fan of Kong Skull Island. Oh. However, that is vastly superior to this. I think anticipation was, was low, generally speaking. As I said, I hadn't I'd kind of forgotten this was even a film that was coming out, so I'd say maybe like a two. A two in enjoyment, it feels basically like a two-hour trailer for <laughs> Godzilla vs. Kong, which mm-hmm. is coming out, I think, next year. This is like the definition of cinematic filler. It just feels like they're desperately trying to, re- and they and they're constantly reminding you of the fact that King Kong exists in mm-hmm. this in this universe, but you don't see him. <laughs> in retrospect, one, I just think this is kind of the pits in terms of blockbuster cinema. Hannah, yeah, pretty much the same. I was a bit more like excited to see it, maybe a three in anticipation, just because I like Mothra. Um, What's but the deal with Mothra? Sorry, is she's it, just a I big moss. She's, she's the queen of the monsters. She's queen of the monsters. I, this is the thing, right? Am I just like really out of touch? And, and I mean, yes, but and, and, and do people secretly or unbalanced to me really love Godzilla mythology? And, and I think there is like a strong contingent of people who do very much like yeah. the myth, and especially Mothra. People the, like Mothra. They introduce all these all these monsters, all these titans, and don't really give them a name in the film. So Mothra, they do say, "Oh, it's Mothra," even <laughs> though it's the one that looks like a moth. So it's kind of you know, all the others. They don't really explain what they are, and they mm. all kind of look like vaguely big dragony lizard things. And yeah. the design isn't, isn't Rodan fantastic. Rodan and Ghidorah look yeah. pretty much. The I same. was completely lost by it, and it's supposed to be like sixteen or seventeen of them or something. Yeah. And you do see a few more of them, but then they do hold a few back. You know, I, I, anyway. I just fortunately they're they'd... in hibernation until a future film. Right. Mm-hmm. It felt to me like they were presuming a lot on the part of the audience, and mm-hmm. there was there were people knew what all, the, what all these characters. I were. suppose it's similar to maybe Iron Man in two thousand and four, where. I think it's just like, yeah. if you know, you know. But I think there if is this a... hits, it's going to be cool. Yeah. But this is like, imagine if we hadn't had any Marvel films and then <laughs> they brought out Infinity War and expected everyone <laughs> to just understand Fair who enough. is who. Speaking of which, I've not given my scores yet, but another thing that didn't annoy me about this film, which we were talking about just before we recorded this, Zhang. Oh, Zhang. Zhang. thank yeah. you. I'm going to say that again. Zhang. uh appears as a scientist in this film and she's fine she does what she can but there's this very strange reveal which is never quite explained where we cut to one of the other outposts and there's this scientist and everyone's going dr ling mothra's waking up or something and then the reveal is that it's it's also zi zhang and they're twins i guess like this is never explained there are so many kind of like ideas that just don't have any payoff. Poor mm-hmm. Sally Hawkins gets a raw deal. Like yeah. there's just, you know, 
it just feels like nobody put any effort into any element of this film and it, it's exhausting. With that, I will give the rest of my scores. It was like a two in enjoyment and a one in retrospect. And I will never feel the need to watch this film again. I think it's a three, two, one from me as well. I really enjoyed Skull Island. I thought Johannes Roberts really brought some real zip and pep to that film and style. None of that is in this film. It's leaden and lumpy. And <laughs> I tell you what that film has is you've got Tom Hiddleston mm-hmm. and Brie Larson bringing a fair amount of star wattage. And this, it has a real sense of place mm. and location. The actual design of King Kong, I think they get right. It feels very close to the kind of 1930s original. Those are the things that massively counted in that, in that film's favour mm-hmm. for me, and they are completely lacking from this. Yeah, and this film, in terms of cast, it's an ensemble of C-listers and people you remember from film ten, ten years ago. <laughs> and Millie Bobby Brown swearing. Yeah. yeah. The only good part, I will say, is, is Ken Wanatambi, who... Always is good. In anything, he's good. In Detective Pikachu, he was good. You know. Is he in Detective Pikachu? Yeah. So how to catch up with that still. <laughs> anyway, we need to move on from King of the Monsters. Godzilla vs. Kong is coming our way next year, directed by Adam Wingard. Maybe we'll be oh God. <laughs> better served by that one. But up next, we go from Beastie to Beanie with Book Spart. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Olivia Wilde makes her directorial debut with this coming-of-age comedy. Bina Feldstein and Caitlin Diva are two overachieving high school seniors who decide on the eve of their graduation to cram four years of fun into one night. We didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. But the irresponsible people who partied also got into those colleges. They did both. So? So we messed up. We didn't have to choose. They did both. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Let's go to Nick's party. Are you kidding? No, no way. We only have one night left to have studied and partied in high school. Otherwise, we're just going to be the girls that missed out. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Okay, we've broken a lot of rules. One, we have fake IDs. Fake college IDs so we can get into their 24-hour library. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. That's, he broke art rules. Name a person who broke a real rule. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. Nobody knows that we are fun. We know. They need to know. Who is they? We are not one-dimensional. We are smart and fun. Smart and fun. 
That's very much the truth in movies vibe, right? <laughs> so Hannah, your review for Little White Lies says that Booksmart is riotously funny with charm to spare. Yeah, I'll stand by that. Yeah. yeah. Please expand. this is one that came I think it premiered at South by Southwest and it kind of was getting a lot of buzz out the gate it's directed by Olivia Wilde who obviously kind of made her name as an actress and I was very excited I think that Beanie Feldstein was one of the best things about Lady Bird and Caitlin Deaver's kind of done a good line in supporting roles over the years so for me I love a good coming of age and this uh, seemed to be ticking a lot of the right boxes for me and then I went and saw it and I think it it really delivers it is it's had a lot of comparisons drawn between it and Superbad which I think Mm. is quite a natural point of comparison they're both these sort of last night of high school we've got a go to a rager sort of uh, films and of course Beanie Feldstein is Jonah Hill's little sister so they do both have this incredible gift I think for comedy and particularly there's something kind of very expressive about their faces there's a wonderful scene in Booksmart where Beanie is just kind of having to react with her face and that's when you kind of see the the similarities between her and her brother I think then again like I think there are a lot of things that Booksmart does that Superbad didn't and that in 2019 are very refreshing to see on screen. We have a lot of kind of talk about female sexuality and one of the lead characters, Amy, is a lesbian, which is kind of, it's part of the story, but it's not kind of mired in the usual turmoil that sort of female sexuality normally is in movies. And yeah, I was just very refreshed and very charmed by this. And it's not reinventing the wheel, but I think it's doing enough to entertain and tick a lot of the right boxes. Yeah, I, I haven't seen this one. I can't wait to see it. But uh, it seems that it is you know, very well-minded in ticking <laughs> these boxes, as you say, but also a real entertaining movie. Adam, were you entertained by this It's one? great fun, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the chemistry between Caitlin and Beanie is... I think often you can try and fake that and you can try and workshop it, but this they just have a real natural, easy way with each other. Your point on the on the characterization as well, I mean that it is quite interesting to have a film where you have a, a gay character but it's not a kind of they're not closeted and it's not this big thing about them having to reveal it to their friends or their parents. She's gay and she's you know, she's already kind of crossed that bridge as it were and and it just plays it in a very kind of um natural way and I think I've read some very strange reviews of this film by like mostly white male older critics who are basically accusing it of of being disingenuous and in the way it depicts high school cliques and caste systems and (laughs) this idea that it that it almost seems to take place in this fake kind of utopia alternate reality where all these kids get on and I think it's a strange criticism to level at this film because Surely there is an encouraging and, and an extremely positive thing to represent these the younger generation as people who are more naturally more kind of progressive mm-hmm. and don't judge each other by the same, you know, in the same level that maybe older generations did and don't use the same labels. And, you know, there's a sense that, yes, it's borrowing from earlier films. Um, I think Olivia Wilde has, has said things like Dazed and Confused and mm-hmm. Clueless and The Breakfast Club and you, and you can pick out elements of all of those films but this is building on those and it's bringing its own ideas and it's doing something I think which in 2019 doesn't feel radical but it feels very kind of open-minded progression of mm-hmm. the genre. It feels like this real constellation of coming-of-age films that is forming at the moment you know from Edge of Seventeen and Lady Bird to um, Eighth Grade earlier this year. Mm. Where does this film fit into all that, Hannah? And it's, a, it's, a, it's in rude health, isn't it, this genre? Yeah, the genre is going from strength to strength. I'd also include Diary of a Teenage Girl in that as mm. well, which uh, is Mario Heller's debut from a few years ago, which is a really like 
beautiful coming of age film and deals with I think kind of a similar the blossoming female sexuality but in a kind of very different way and for me I think Booksmart is slightly more slight than some of these other films I think certainly more so than maybe 8th grade and Edge of 17 but it does serve a purpose as we've just been saying as Adam has just said about the kind of the the, the strange criticisms that have been levelled at this movie I think it's so important to show teenagers as not constantly snarking at each other and being like, you know, kind of making life hell for each other. My experience of being a teenager was not being constantly bullied the whole time. And I think a lot of teenagers, that isn't their experience of high school. And whilst it is kind of, there's been a lot of other criticism around the film's kind of depictions of class and wealth and the fact it is a predominantly white cast of clearly very middle class characters who are all going to these Ivy League schools which obviously is not you know that's not going to be representative of a lot of people's high school experiences but for me that doesn't kind of mean it's instantly dismissible just because it doesn't look how my high school experience did I think it's not really meant to be representative of everyone's high school experience it's you know, it is in some way escapism. It is just this kind of like fantastical, you know, one magical night film, which there's a rich tradition of films like this. And in the kind of over, 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 mm. I don't know, of um, high school movies, it does, I think it slots in quite nicely mm. alongside the ones that are more kind of serious, like dealing with big issue films I think it's you know it's a nice accompaniment to that it's nice to have a, a spectrum of, of films and they don't all have to be prestige they don't all have to be A24 hip they can be uh, all sorts yeah. yeah it's funny though because I don't think you'd have had people criticising Ferris Bueller for being middle class <laughs> or the kids in the breakfast club I, I think that's a very that's a bit of a problem with kind of modern criticism and kind of cultural analysis that we mm. instantly jump on that and it, you know it's important to judge the film by what it is actually trying to do and say rather than what it's not Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no pretension for it to be this sort of to be anything that, other than than it is. So, uh, you know. this is one other positive aspect from this film. I think is that it's you know, this this film has been so lauded as has eighth grade, and people are responding by saying, "Well, what about these films from a couple of years ago that maybe you missed? You know, yeah, yeah. that maybe fell under the radar, didn't get broader distribution, that it, tackle similar themes with different people of different demographics." Yeah, there? this is a bit more mainstream, a bit more mm-hmm. accessible, I guess, and it is. It is, a, it is a comedy. It works really well on that level. I mean, you can go into it. And I mean, I'm not, I've not been a teenage <laughs> American high schooler, uh, but totally related to the characters and their experiences. And just, you know, I think the jokes and the, and, and the, just the, the acting, the characterization really pays off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really wonderful. There's a real lightness to it as well. And uh, it is a kind of wonderful depiction of a, of a, of a young teenage yeah. girl relationship. And so going back to Superbad, that turned Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah into stars overnight, almost. Yeah. And in this we have Beanie Feldstein, who was fantastic in Lady Bird in the supporting role, not the titular role, a couple of years ago. <laughs> and then Caitlin Deaver, who's been on telly in all sorts of films. She was in Beautiful Boy earlier this year in a very thankless, small role. Is this going to have a similar effect for them, do you think? They, are they outright stars now? I hope so. Mm. I, Beanie's doing um, the new Catelyn Moran by... I'll say biopic it's not a biopic mm-hmm. it's based on her memoir I guess um, Raised by Wolves which is out later this year I think so she's kind of got a, her big first leading role on the horizon already and I don't know what um, Caitlin Deaver is doing next but if there's any justice they will be um, big stars but as we've seen like 
you know, you can have these kind of really great breakout performances and then still not kind of mm. like hit the big time. Like, I think Hayley Steinfeld, like she did True Grit and then a couple of years later she did the Pitch Perfect films in Edge of 17, but I guess Bumblebee. But I'm yet to see her in something again where I think, oh, wow, yeah, this, this is really good. So I think the thing is in Hollywood that I think young girls who are kind of pretty and funny are kind of dime a dozen so <laughs> I am approaching with caution but hopefully I think you know they are both like very good actresses and, and lovely people as well I met them for their white eyes and I you know I think they kind of they seem to have their heads screwed on which is a very right. like mum thing of me to say but they seem very like they know what they're doing right so, so. hopefully we won't see them in Godzilla 3 down the line <laughs> let's put some scores on this Hannah you, you like this one right yeah yeah it falls across the board for me you know I've, I've seen it twice now and I think it, it does still have that like repeat viewing payoff for me it's very like much like Superbad much like many of the good kind of um comedies of that like mid-noughties ilk it's very easy watching it is one of those things where you I imagine you could kind of put it on Netflix and like just you have it on in the background while you're kind of doing other things it doesn't require you to think a lot about things and it kind of just gives you that warm fuzzy feeling you know you're just like oh the kids are all right you know <laughs> and for many of our international listeners it is already on netflix for them yeah it is yeah that international rollout <laughs> adam what did you think of Booksmart? yeah i'd, I'd match those mm-hmm. fours across the board yeah it's, it's, it's a very enjoyable film i think olivia wilde could go on to do you know interesting things as a director from here i don't know what other projects she's got um, you know, in on the back burner, but it feels like a real statement, not just for her, but the yeah, Beanie and and Caitlin feels like this will be the making of them, much in the mm-hmm. way it was for for those guys in Superbad. And I think people will cherish this film. That generation was coming of age as Superbad came out, and it would have been on everyone's DVD shelf. Mm-hmm. And I think this will will have the same impact for the younger generation now. Terrific. So we had a good film this week and a not-so-good film. <laughs> That's Booksmart and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, both in cinemas this week. Any other business before we look to next week? Yeah, tangentially to Booksmart. I say tangentially, it's not. It's, it's directly related to Booksmart. <laughs> okay. If you are local to the Leeds area, I will be in Leeds on the 12th of June doing a little panel and intro oh. for Booksmart at the lovely Hyde Park Picturehouse Cinema. Mm-hmm. So come and watch the movie and say hi if you're around. Fantastic. Talking about teen movies, I suppose, or talking about the film? I don't know. We'll see. I've not, I've not got an email to, reply yet. You'll so. have to buy a ticket to find out. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you, Hannah. There's no film clip this week because we were still dealing with the backlog from Cannes, but looking to next week, summer blockbuster season continues apace with X-Men Dark Phoenix. Gosh. <laughs> Some counter-programming, we have Gloria Bell, Sebastian Lelio, remaking his own film, but with Julianne Moore in the English language starring role. And for Film Club next week, we have an Ealing comedy, Kind Hearts and Coronets, which is getting a re-release, starring Alec Guinness in how many roles? Several. Seven, I think. Fantastic. It might be more than seven. Mm -hmm. But one of my, if not my all-time favourite films. Oh, it's a terrific movie, isn't it? Have you seen it, Hannah? No. Oh, maybe you should have to watch it. (laughs) Hannah or listeners. I'll email in. (laughs) Can let us know. Listeners, you can let us know what you think of Kind Hearts Coronets or any other films we talk about on this podcast at the usual channels at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com via email or the comments section at LWLives.com slash podcast. Adam Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Michael Eder, and as always, this has been a seven digital production.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.